this meeting is being live streamed. What's up, folks? It is Tuesday. Uh, it's value after hours. Uh, is it? <laughs> we've got a. It doesn't make any sense. Don't worry about it. Just just let it just let it wash over you. Uh, joined as always by Jake Taylor, and yeah, as a special guest today, we have Alex Morris, the science of hitting. How are you, Alex? Welcome to the show. Good. One of the ten. Happy to be on. So we only have nine listeners now, unless Bill's listening, I guess. <laughs> He's not. Okay, we're down to nine. Sorry to hurt the numbers. Good to see you, Alex. Glad uh, glad you could make it. Yeah, I was putting some journalistic notices, notes in this morning. So, uh, Attaboy. We'll see, we'll see how those pan out in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are the odds that they're going to be embarrassing? That's always a good question. for. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> strong to quite strong. I had so, a notebook that I kept for a while, and one of my journal entries that I remember was uh, Microsoft, which thankfully I still own today. But I remember I wrote, "It's at twenty-five dollars. Fair value is thirty-two. I was very, I was very confident that the fair value was thirty-two. I don't remember why or how I got there, but uh, thankfully I didn't listen to that in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that like five x ago? It was a while ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me do some shout outs. Uh, yeah, Townsville, Townsville strong in the house today. Craig and Dino in Townsville. What's up, fellas? Uh, Arkansas, Seattle, Jamaica, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Madison, Concord, Norberg, Poland, Sterling, Scotland. How about that? My brother's wow. uh, middle name is Sterling. Auckland. <laughs> the Azores. This is a great, uh, great, great spread. How's everybody doing? Excellent. Let yeah. How's the, oh, that was rhetorical for the, the audience. That's for the audience. <laughs> rhetorical. Yeah. Okay. How was the, uh, uh, res- how's the reaction to the journalistic launch last week? Uh, very strong quite strong. Quite strong. Yeah. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, lots of people creating accounts and getting in there and, and doing some real work and uh, lots of good feedback, which is exactly what we need right now. So uh, it's been, it's been fantastic. Been very thankful for for everyone's uh, energy and participation and sharing it. And um, yeah, I think we're we're we might be building a pretty solid community here as well. So there might be a lot more features coming that would uh, allow some more interaction. I've been using it for a week. My performance hasn't improved at all. JT, does that happen? <laughs> we'll just stop then. Right now, I think I'm down. Yeah, I'm down over the week. <laughs> Give up. So I got I got a few topics this week. Uh, yeah. This is just just this is not a whole topic, but the ten three, the the treasury, the ten three, uh, is last either yesterday or Friday was the most inverted it's been in the data going back to nineteen eighty two. I get that that's a short period of time, but um, I don't know if it, I don't know if steepness in the inversion means anything. I don't know if it's relevant or not. I just sort of bring this up because it has been a pretty good predictor of recessions in the past. And if you go into a recession, you get a much bigger drawdown in the market. I don't actually do anything about that trading-wise. I just sort of watch it just because I. it's like slowing down on the freeway, knowing mm-hmm. that there's a big accident further up ahead. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not changing anything. I just sort of know that it's coming. Anyway, it makes me a little bit nervous, but be some good buying opportunities when it rolls around. I looked at it after you talked about it last week and all I... All, the only conclusion I came to is that I was very confused by what I was even looking at. I don't, I don't understand most of this stuff very well, but it certainly was confusing slash a uh, little bit scary <laughs> to me to see what I was looking at. <laughs> I don't Isn't know what. It's hard works. to imagine, though, Toby, that there's 
most most slowed in coming? Well, is it like is this the most telegraphed uh, you know recession and market crash in history? If it was to show up, I mean, almost by definition, since everyone knows it's coming, does that mean it's it can't come? The thing is, the market's not off that much. Like the S and P five hundred's only off like. 15, 12, 15% since the start of the year. That's fair. Um, given what's happened over the last few years with that bubble run up, and then, you know, on some measures, the most expensive market we've ever seen, um, people can debate the efficacy of CAPE or Tobin's Q or those other things, but they do seem to be very, very stretched. And they have spent a long period of their history below the mean. And these things run back more than 100 years. Uh, maybe we've entered a brave, brave new world where margins are more easily managed and capitalism doesn't compete as ferociously, but it doesn't feel like that to me. So at some stage, margins compress. P's will start looking a little bit stretched because the earnings are down. And then even though the market's down, it still looks expensive. Maybe there are better opportunities elsewhere. I don't know how it works, but it just... it. I get that sentiment view too. Like I don't talk to anybody who's not the average person who I talk to is just like, yeah, there's a big crash coming. So that's not like that's new news. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a real, uh, <clears throat> variant it's not perception helpful. there. It's not helpful at all. Like it's not, it's not like you can use, there's a big crash coming to do anything. It, it shouldn't change your behavior. The only reason I do it is because I just want to be mentally prepared when it happens. I've got my buy list ready. Mm. I know what I'm going to do. And so when it happens, you don't get the adrenaline pumping. You're just yeah. like going through the plan that you have to buy stuff, knowing that you, you probably buy something and sell it cheaper because there's something that's better value down there and don't worry about it. Just keep on going through. The worst thing you can do is panic at the bottom and pull all your money out, which is I've seen lots and lots of people do. So I just try to yeah. get my head right before we have the car accident, know what I'm going to do. That's a very good idea. Like have your man overboard plan ready to go. Yeah. Don't That's wait until right. you're in the heat of the moment. Yeah. One of the things I struggle with, with this particular time period is completely understanding that comment and having hey, some sense of normalized economics. They might come in if macro is tough. Knowing what normalized is for a lot of the businesses I'm looking at has just become really so hard. tough in the past two to three years. And for a lot of names or industries that I definitely wouldn't have predicted at the start of COVID having major headwinds, tailwinds at different times that I, in some cases, I can't even explain them today, basically. So that makes life a little difficult. <laughs> yeah. Does it like COVID feels like uh, we all have to like knock 10% off of our circle of competence, like across the board, basically, like just understanding, yeah. being able to predict like what industry competitive dynamics look like. I think you got to be really, uh, Kind of take some of that in and your confidence and and just recognize that like boy this is tough right now it's tough to tease out the secular and the cyclical it's always tough to tease out the secular and the cyclical but particularly this time like to what extent will work from home persist and then what knock-on effects does that have for commercial real estate very very high end commercial real estate and then within that there's also a business cycle going on it's very very hard i, I don't i don't I don't know that anybody can figure that out, but it'll cost you money yeah. one way or the other. <laughs> On that topic, it's funny. It's, it seems like most companies have, from what I've seen, kind of pulled back a bit on the idea of, hey, you can work remote full-time forever. That will be your job. Outside of Airbnb, which is a company that continues to say, mm. we think this is a competitive advantage for us to be able to hire 
anybody anywhere and give them a significant amount of flexibility. It'd be interesting to see how, I mean, maybe there's other companies doing it, obviously, but I'll be curious to see how that kind of experiment plays out for them over five, 10 years. Do you think that that's because they are, uh, because of the nature of their business that they have to be seen to be doing that? Chesky, the, the CEO definitely, he, he he's lived on Airbnb at various times. I think he might be doing it now even. So it certainly plays into his idea of, you know, what's possible, but obviously different levels of the organization have different roles and responsibilities that may require being there in person. So I'd just be curious if it's actually applicable on a much brighter, a much broader way than, you know, the CEO. Yeah, we'll if, you're like an, if you're an office re, uh, managing one of those, do you, <laughs> does everyone have <laughs> to come remote. back into the office? We're all remote. <laughs> We're all remote. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if something like, you know, Microsoft, Google, cause I, I don't know if you guys remember, but before COVID, uh, Yahoo was working remotely. Yahoo was doing a lot of remote work. And when Marissa Meyer came in, she said, no, 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 we're stopping that. You guys aren't doing any work. You're all back in the office. And that was a big, like that didn't, nothing, nothing saved Yahoo. That obviously that wasn't the problem, but it's funny that that was the, uh, they were trialing it. Didn't work. Couldn't, couldn't get it work for Yahoo. If it doesn't work for Yahoo, I don't know who it works for. Yeah. It's a brave new world. Um, I've got the GMO paper. Uh, we don't have to do that now, but I've got GMO came out with a uh, a recent bit. I should get the title because it was good. And I've got um, uh, a topic called the invisible present and also a fun story from last week uh, when I was up in Seattle. So we've got a full lineup today. So with the 10-3 inversion, do we do you guys still do the innings anymore? I haven't Bill talk haven't heard Bill talk <laughs> about the innings for what are we going backwards? How does that work? It's your your bill today, so you have to be the one who keeps tells us what inning we're in. <laughs> oh boy. Um we're an extra World Cup edition. We're an extra time. Extra we're running time. out of time. <laughs> we're, we're almost at PKs. We're getting close. <laughs> it's funny because the 10-3 that I, I saw somebody, somebody like the average period of time. So the 10-3 inversion, once you've got 10 consecutive days, so I guess they're business days, so two weeks, then there hasn't been a period of time where a recession hasn't followed over the last 50 years, but there's only eight instances where mm. the 10-3 is inverted followed by a recession. So it's not it's statistically significant, but it's an interesting kind of fact pattern. And we, the thing that we were talking last week was a little bit about whether it was not predicting so much as it was like illustrating that there was a problem. It was an expectation of deflation because it, it did exist. Evidently in the like the 1800s, the paper that I tweeted out showed that inversion was the ordinary course, was ordinarily inverted. It wasn't uh, in, was it backwardation, contango, normal backwardation. Oh, I've got that around, around the wrong way. I don't know. But it's, it, the inversion is unusual today but it was not unusual at all and the reason was well the interpretation in the paper was that they had a lot of deflation so perhaps it indicates deflation or it predicts deflation i don't know but it's it's inverted right now and the the uh average period of time from inversion to the recession is 10 months so that would be like august september next year this this is treasuries right that we're looking at for this is Three there months treasury yeah. and the 10-year treasury is there any sense as to how clean or dirty market signals are today with um intervention like is there a finger on the scale 
Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. But is, there's always been a finger on that scale, right? Well, since uh, I guess. 1913. <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've always participated in that market, haven't they? I would imagine, not true? yeah. Yeah, I think the commentary from some of the retailers has been interesting in terms of just general sentiment of consumers. I mean, everybody from, you know, DG and Walmart on one end are more grocers than anything else and skew a little bit lower end. And basically the commentary is food and beverages, you know, driving all the sales as inflation and cost and, and price increases. Basically, you know, there's not really volume growth there. It's just pricing. And that's offsetting general merchandise to the extent that that exists. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, Costco comments yesterday from the CEO saying high-end TVs, you know, stuff like that. I think his comment was the consumer today is more value conscious than they've ever been before. So interesting comment for obviously at two different ends of the spectrum in terms of, you know, income levels, right? So ever been? That's that's actually a pretty bold statement. That's what he said. Yeah. Hmm. There's a lot of, unpre- it feels like there's a lot of unprecedented stuff in the data over the last few years just because that that run up and then the run back down has made it so hard to predict so everybody's overboard or bought in too much inventory and they had to get rid of inventory like now the shipping's coming back to normal mm-hmm. well that was remember yeah. we were talking about that on this podcast and i think my, do you remember jt when they said they would clear that backlog that was off los angeles was it did they say it was end of 2022 because they've got that right if that was the case mid 2022 I thought it was projected to go out even farther than that back then, but I don't know. Yeah. It probably should have done pretty well there. Probably should have written that down somewhere. <laughs> well, it's recorded in a podcast. There's a transcript. Yeah, it's somewhere. <laughs> the, yeah, the that, that's thing- amazing to, to have cleaned that up. I mean, that had to have been not the easiest thing in the world to figure out logistically. I guess you just keep on working on it. The, the interesting thing about the the recessions and stock market performance that the, often the the declaration of a recession is the bottom for the stock market because mm, it's backward looking and it's already cats out the of the recession is looking backward the recession call is backwards looking but the stock market is forwards looking and it's one of the you know it's it's the the sequence of um economic data is H-O-P-E. So it starts with housing. There's O and P, whatever that stands for, and then employment goes last. I haven't I love, bothered looking it up yet. I, I love the fact to. this is like the fifth time we've talked about that acronym, and you still haven't bothered to go look and see what the O and P are. Because you, you only need to worry about two of them. You only need to worry about the H, and the H is clearly rolling over pretty hard at the moment. The E is employment is still very strong, and that's the thing that if you hear any commentators talking about it, they'll say, oh, employment's, there the can't be a recession because employment's really strong. Not realizing that the recession- It's the last. Yeah, it's the last thing to go. And when they actually, when when employment peaks and you start seeing losses, that's when the stock market takes off. The stock market will rocket at that point. So it's sick. Like it's, it looks like the stock market's celebrating the fact that people are getting fired, but I think it's more to do with mm. the stock market's looking forward. And they know that as soon as that cracks, and in any case, that's backwards-looking data. So when that cracks, it's typically better times are ahead. For the love of God, someone in the hive mind, please look up what that O and the P is. Like I, <laughs> I can't do this for another week. <laughs> uh, do you do you want me to do do you want do you want to do the GMO paper? There's just one interesting factoid from the paper that I that I just wanted to bring bring out. But 
Yeah. I thought it was kind of yeah. interesting. Um, so this is their quarterly letter and they're explaining the deep value. So they divide the, they say the deep value is very, very cheap. They divide the universe into five quintiles. So a quintile is one fifth and then they rank them from one to five where one is the most expensive. That's all of the, the growthy type stocks. And then four, and then the fifth is the, the cheapest. So the, the value type stocks. And then they looked at their relative valuations to their own histories. And so the most expensive stocks, even though they're off a lot, they're still trading in the 88th percentile of overvaluation, which I think is kind of amazing. The second um, quintile is in the 90th percentile of overvaluation. That, wait, so this is the most expensive we're talking about? So the most expensive is the way down. 88th percentile of overvaluation. Yeah. Okay. The second quintile is the 90th percentile of overvaluation. The third quintile is in the 97th percentile of overvaluation. Mm. So that's the market, probably. The fourth quintile, so this should be, this is the second value bucket. This is in the 70th percentile of overvaluation. But if you get down to the cheapest bucket, it's in the fourth percentile relative to its own history. So that's why you've seen this huge, I've been talking about the spread, like this massive spread for a while now. It peaked at the end of uh, September, I think, and it came in in October for the first time. And you can see that in this data a little bit. So basically what GMO is saying is that deep value is Super the only cheap. place that's really undervalued. Yeah. Sick. You know what? I've, after I read that, I went and looked a little bit. I was trying to dig into some of my, If I, can I confirm that anywhere in other data? And one of the places I looked was the uh, the ETF RZV, which is the small cap value. It's just a plain vanilla small cap value. And when, <clears throat> I've, I've owned it at different points in the past. Uh, and it was, when I looked at it, it was at 8.6 PE trailing and 0.95 price to book, which to me is like kind of like a normal price for small value. Like it's probably around, uh, you know, one times price to book typically, uh, or, you know, maybe a little bit more than that, but like I've bought it at times where it was down at like a half of price to book. So that's like two X from where I've, I've know I've purchased it before. So that like, doesn't quite square with that fourth percentile cheapest cheap bucket um, in my mind. But one thing that was interesting was that the ROE on the RZV was actually like 12 and a half percent, which I thought was quite a bit higher than I would have guessed. Like that's a lot higher quality. So maybe that's part of it. I, I don't know Like clearly we're like looking at different data slices somehow. But to me, like it didn't seem quite as cheap as I would have expected based on based on GMO's observation. Yeah, how have they determined their value? Oh, I've just lost the. Uh... They probably use some kind of multi-factor uh, or multi-measurement, you know, value that makes peanut sense. buttering. But still, <laughs> if you want some, if you want something to be optimistic about, it, I remember a Goldman Porth report a few years ago that said we were at the 99th percentile in terms of valuation. So now we're, you said the middle bucket's 97 now, right? So we're getting cheaper. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> it's funny how little it's moved, honestly. It's funny to go and look at it and see. Every time you feel like, the, like I feel like the market's, it's been in drawdown all year long. Now, I, we've been various stages, we've been down 20% or so. And I don't check it that often. So I went back in and had a look and I was like, oh no, we're it's like it's hardly moved. It's hardly off because it's bounced so much from that October low. 
Well, if you're using earnings, but I, like, I don't feel like that the fundamental has rolled over to keep at a similar valuation level, right? The ratio. So I don't, I don't yeah. know. It's does you're right though. It doesn't feel like this like super bomb out. Uh, certainly yet. I've got a, I've got a, an update on the acronym. Do you want to hear it? John Borchel. Oh, yes, Hope. Housing orders, profits, employment, orders and profits. Orders. Okay. Yeah. Huh. I was the profits. I've already forgot what you said they were. <laughs> <laughs> Housing, Housing goes first, employment goes last. There you go. Orders, profits, employment. Brad says RZV wouldn't be bottom decile. The four percent was the bottom quintile. Yeah. Do, so what is RZV? It's the half, right? They divided in half. There's a RZG and an RZV. I I suppose. Yeah. That's that might be. That might be a factor. Hmm. The question is whether they do it by count of stocks or whether they they do it by like some valuation index. Because I think that that's been a problem for some of those value ETFs that have that style of creating them that they haven't had enough stocks to put into the the V bucket. Hmm. There's too much stuff that's doing too well, so it all ends up in the. Because I think that they tend to put some momentum overlay in there as well, so it pushes a lot of stuff into the momentum, the growth. It's part of the ETF. Hmm. A, lot of, a lot of ways to slice it, huh? Indeed. <laughs> do you want to do do you want to do your your bit, JT? Sure. I thought I would uh start off with a little story that was kind of fun. Uh I was up in Seattle last week and celebrating with a little bit of the launch for my with my co-founders. Um and I also happened to meet up with our mutual friend. George, Toby, and uh, we, I got a chance to actually meet Lee Lu, which was uh, quite an awesome experience. Uh, very effervescent, very personable, high energy, um, just actually like, it was weird because I came away from it and I was like, oh, that was cool. And like that night, and then the next morning I woke up and I was like, wow, that was actually really cool. Like it, it took a little bit of time for it to sink in. Uh, and, and eventually I was like, man, that was like better than I would have ever expected. Uh, so they always say, don't meet your heroes. But in this case, uh, you know, Lilu came through in a, in a big Jealous, way. So. Envious. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I was, I would have been as well uh, up until last week, but <laughs> <laughs> pretty awesome. Uh, okay. So you guys want to do some vegetables? So uh, this one comes from, Shout out to my boy, Paul in Ireland, who sent me this article that's from the Long Now Foundation, which we've done a few of their things before. Uh, I like them a lot because they're they're trying to get humanity to think in longer timeframes, which is, you know, I think kind of near and dear to my heart. But uh, one of the things that they do that I always find funny when you're reading one of their articles is that they put a zero in front of the years. So it'll say zero <laughs> 2022 to get you to think about like, well, someday it's going to be, you know, 10,000 uh, you know, 2022. Uh, so I find that to be, it's always a little off-putting when you first read it. Cause it's like, wait, Oh, that's supposed to be a year. But then when you, you know, you remember again, what they were trying to get you to think about, it's kind of fun. Uh, so let's, let's paint a little picture, uh, for nine months of every single year, there's this guy named Chris Halsh who every two weeks will walk this same 10 mile loop near Donner pass, which happens to be in my backyard. Uh, and it's high up in the California Sierra Nevadas. And his sole purpose when he's out there every two weeks is to count butterflies. And 
he, he visits five different sites at different altitudes. And with this metronomic regularity, he's out there for the past five years counting butterflies. And every time he retraces his steps, he's jotting down which species and the number that he's seeing. And it turns out that these notes that he's taken are actually highly coveted by scientists. And he types them up in a spreadsheet and every single data point adds a new segment to this really long chain of observations that's been growing without interruption for more than half a century. And it's these exact same places that they're measuring and these really long lived efforts to monitor the butterfly population. And it's kind of like a relay race where now, you know, Halsh is the one who's extending this run, this marathon that actually started 20 years before he was even born. So these type of like multi-decade time series observations are, they're really rare and they're, they're very valuable artifacts in measuring ecosystem health because they overcome this particular weakness that we have in our ability to perceive the natural world. And, you know, we've developed all these powerful methods for, for looking at past events that, you know, could have been like the birth of galaxies billions of years ago, mass extinctions millions of years ago. We have instruments now that will measure like and parse the present down into these tiny, tiny slivers of time that we can measure. They call them zeptoseconds. Uh, but when it comes to like this modest timescale of our own lives, we're, we're almost basically blind. Um, so, you know, for instance, like scientists have been tracking atmospheric CO2 at the Mauna Loa uh, Observatory in Hawaii uh, for 64 years. And we right now we'll use tree rings and ice cores and sediment drilling samples to like capture sometimes data that are like millions of years old. Um, and there's kind of some fun stories about like there's uh, locals in Finland have been keeping the freeze and thaw dates of a particular river for like 325 years. So we have like some pretty good like idea of some of the temperature changes for for that uh particular area and like and of course japan like we've talked about longevity in japan before and they have some data series that uh are measuring the flowering of cherry trees and and when did they when did that happen and it goes back like 12 centuries they like they have these notebooks from monks who are keeping track of when the cherry blossoms happened and uh so it's back to like 800 ad uh so but hmm. the problem is is that we our perceptions are often distorted by we have really selective memories and cognitive biases, sometimes political agendas. And one of the most uh, uh, difficult parts of this is that we have this shifting baseline syndrome, like where whatever sort of the recent past has been will influence what we think is normal. And, uh, you know, each generation kind of gradually forgets the conditions of the past and we accept the new ones as completely normal. And so, um, in, this uh there was an essay by the zoologist named john magnuson and he he wrote about this kind of temporal myopia myopa that, that we we get trapped in what he called the invisible present so that's what i'm calling this segment um and it's this space where we can't see the slow changes and we can't see the effects because often they're lagging years from from their causes so um and one of the issues that right now in science is that the, the there tends to be these three-year grant cycles. So if you wanted to have like a long longitudinal study, like you can't get the funding for it because it like there's nobody to pay for it further out than about three years. Um, and so, you know, it, we end up with these thousands of snapshot studies, um, you know, that look at a single hurricane, like, but it won't look at like what happens 
cyclical damage of hurricanes like over 30 years, like that type of analysis just doesn't get done. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to think about like, what are, what's the invisible present to us today in the investment world that we're missing out on? And, you know, these shifting baselines, they mean that we start ignoring the past and accept the present as normal. And we get used to it. We start taking it for granted. And what what would appear right now today to be anomalies in a bigger, longer data set? So the first thing that comes to mind is interest rates for me. Um, you know, the relative present has been these incredibly low rates, but that it really doesn't, that seems like an, a historical anomaly. And yet we all sort of like, I think everyone's waiting for rates to go back down to 2%, right? Like that's like, we just think that's going to be the new normal. And I, you know, I, I wonder about that. Uh, multiples, obviously, which are, are often driven by that interest rate. Uh, we kind of got used to, getting 30 or 50 times revenue for a SaaS company. Like, is, is that going to come back or was that an anomaly? Profit margins, we talk about this on the show a lot. Uh, where's, has this, you know, 12, 13, 14% profit margins, is that the new normal? Or, you know, is it like that's the historical anomaly because 6% used to be the normal. Uh, and then, you know, factors, uh, obviously, like, you know, values dead, those type of arguments. Um, like, but historically, if you look back further, that, uh, you know, it tended to work out pretty well. So, um, and, you know, a little bit of like self-promotion, but like these time series data are really hard to just remember. And it's really dangerous, I think, to do this kind of work all in your head. So you should probably be keeping a journal. It's, you know, it's it's pretty impossible to remember what you were thinking in the past with, in high fidelity uh, and to keep track of the changes. And one of the biggest problems is that the business affects can lag their cause by multiple years. Like Bezos famously said, like during he'd get congratulated on a quarter and he would say like, well, I can't really take credit for that because that was all stuff that we did three years ago. That's finally showing up today. Um, it, and it's just simply too hard to keep track of all that stuff in your head, unless you're writing it down. Um, I would say the short research grant cycles of academia today are analogous to short-term and horizons in the investment world. Uh, you know, it's really easy to be blind to these slower developing but important trends when you're only thinking a few months out or the next Fed cycle or, you know, um, and then you, it's shocking when you read about this, these, uh, you know, crazy percentage of options today that are be trading that are like really, they're termed out in hours, not days or weeks or months, right? Like it's it's this insane kind of gambling instinct that's still taking place. Well, that's exactly um, what it is. Otherwise you don't get the satisfaction of getting your answer straight away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Toby, of course, you know, like you have these value charts that go back hundreds of years, but it's really easy to dismiss it today that, you know, all that stuff is not applicable to this new digital age, you know, price to books been discarded because intangibles, uh, you know, are, are the new normal in the business world. So it's having a we, good year. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe that's the anomaly. I don't know. But I think we all have to be thinking <laughs> in these, it, like thinking about our longitudinal data sets and how applicable are they to today? And should we, is it our thing? What's the new normal? And what, what is not the new normal? And I think that if you can get some of that stuff, right, I think the game gets quite a bit easier. Yeah, I think yeah, a great a great example. I was I was listening to a portion of the 2004 Berkshire meeting before we hopped on here randomly, and a question was about corporate profits as a percentage of GDP. And Buffett's answer was basically, "Technology is just as likely to make that better as it is to make it worse." And, and effectively said, "You know, the real beneficiary of of the GDP growth over time, a lot of it goes to the consumers." And you can think of you know that comment being said almost 20 years ago now, and thinking how long 
even the largest, most well-established media. I mean, they're really just getting there now, kind of, in terms of what was being seen late 90s, early 2000s. It's, it's only now, and obviously it's still reshaping and will continue to reshape, but it's a good example of takes a long time for these things to play out. And, and there is an open question still whether or not are, are the companies, the beneficiaries, are the consumers, is there a reasonable mix? What's the actual, what's the actual breakdown there? Just yeah, who's going to have to share those economics with the, with their user customers eventually? I, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty, I'm fairly confident over a long enough time horizon that eventually that it almost all goes to the consumer. Uh, it's just a matter of how long does that take and how much profit is there available to the to the producer surplus uh, in the in the meantime. But and you can layer on top of there a political version of that same idea, which is you know twenty years ago, M and A that might be able to get done is that still applicable today, or is has the political regime or thinking on these topics changed in a way that fundamentally impacts industry structure over long term? Yeah, what are tax rates look like? That's also another. They're quite a bit lower than they were 20 years ago. Yeah. Before we got on, we were talking about. Uh, do, do you have that Cal Breath quote off the top of your head, JT? Oh yeah, I something like uh, financial history teaches us that over the short term we learn a lot, the medium term we learn a little bit, and the long term we learn nothing. <laughs> it, it is funny how often these like the tech the tech boom cycle repeats over and over again through the history and it's just funny like whatever every human being who's ever been alive has known that they are you know modern humans at the very pinnacle of civilization <laughs> it's just that the technology has changed along the way right like in 1825 it was steam engines that steam ships that became steam trains 1844 it was the telegraph and so on, like in 1969, it was electronics. The late 1990s, it was dot-com 1.0. And then this last boom, I don't know, SaaS or dot-com 2.0 or something else. And there'll be another one in the next 10 or 20 years that'll be completely plausible in the moment and won't seem like a bubble at all until it's well into it. And then it gets it gets swept away and the, the valuations go crazy. It'll happen again. It's funny. Like I've, I've now seen, I saw... My first day of work was April 2000, which was the crash. But I was at university and I remember seeing it just was exciting and interesting, all of the sort of dot-com stuff that was happening. And then it was a value cycle that ended with like that leverage buyout boom, all those gigantic leverage buyouts getting done with like Stamzel selling into the biggest buyout ever done. And you getting sucked in as a as a value investor at that well, point. Well, we were turns out we were value momentum investors. We were working. just riding the train. Yeah, we were just on what was working. And then uh and, and tech was cringe as hell through that. Everybody like yeah. people pitching tech ideas were just laughed out of the like tech was trading at like three times EV EBIT. I was buying tech companies for nothing and worried about them because I didn't think they were gonna make it. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, you know, you get this new cycle, tech will be cringe again. Tech is getting cringe now. It'll be hard to raise money for tech in a little bit. And then, you know, coincidentally, that's probably the best time to be investing in it. And there'll be, it will probably have a financial run here that'll end with more tears and then it'll be on to the next cycle. It just happens over and over again. You just got to try to get to blow up. Go ahead. That's it. That's it. There's a great quote from Klarman along the ideas of, you know, everybody who starts in the business in a certain window has certain views about stuff. And it takes that five, 10, 15 year period for that to wash out and, you know, restart again, basically. <laughs> I think that's true. I think in that's different true. Ways. Yeah. I think it makes it's sense. Fun. 
Hussman, Hussman also says something like you should measure from peak to peak or trough to trough. And I never really understood why that was so important until I'd been through a few of them. And I was like, yeah, you can really get funny results if you measure from a trough to a peak or a peak to a trough. You really need, do need to be aware of where you are in the cycle as you, even looking at business results, like it's not just stock price results. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have more JT? Do we? I'm spent. That was a good one. I think another another one that probably applies to what you're saying that I am not smart enough to talk about other than to just say it is probably, you know, geopolitical and globalization and mm. and everything happening, which seems like a lot and obviously could potentially be uh, changing pretty significantly as we look ahead, which would probably be very bad for the world. But that seems like another notable one. Yeah, the fall of the Berlin Wall felt momentous. I was 10 when that happened. Hmm. And I'd like grown up watching Rocky and Rambo and all this, like <laughs> yeah, all that propaganda. And so it was funny when Red, that happened. It's like, Dawn, oh, there's no bad guy anymore. Yeah, yeah. They remade Red Dawn, but was it was, was it, was it the Chinese or the Russians at that? Point? Yeah, I don't know. Could have been could have been North Koreans. Like you can't you can't criticize China because that's a big export market. You got to find oh, yeah. some country that Holly, doesn't buy oh, yeah, Hollywood. Doesn't watch the movies. Cozied up with them. <laughs> North North Korea gets a hiding. It's like twenty million people. Living in the Bronze Age. At least you know you're probably going to beat him. Easy yeah. segue from there. Oh, one one other thing I wanted to <laughs> one one other thing I wanted to raise was the Cape. Cape is a good example of that. JT, like Cape over the last twenty five years has a much much higher mean mm -hmm. than the full set. The full set mean is like sixteen. It's, I think it might even be pushed up to seventeen now yeah. because of the last few years. But even then, that's way way below where it's traded for the last 25 years. And the funny thing is that when Schiller wrote his paper, it was 1996. And that's coincidentally the last time that it traded at the mean. And it took <laughs> that, off. That, from, was, uh, that was a rational exuberance. <laughs> and then, yeah, then it took off from there. And it's never, it's never traded. Like it, I think in 2009, it like touched the mean, March 6, 2009, touched the mean and bounced off it like a golf ball off a concrete path. Yeah, that was, that was, uh, if you were using Cape as a timing tool, that was a rough, that was a rough uh, go for you there, because you would have thought for sure in that environment you're gonna go below the mean for a little while, right? You have. To. I mean, I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. I guess interest rates like. Good the, thing you're the, not a macro guy. Oh, you'd be out of business. I don't know how you do it. I guess you just have to hold a little bit of every asset. Like you, you have to do it like asset allocation. I think that's the only way to do it, right? Well, what's the point? I assume after that, <laughs> might as well just index and go home. Uh, but you get to be a you get to be a macro hedge fund dude. Talk gets, about it. Go on CNBC. Yeah. Tell people what you think. It is sexy topics if you can get in there and really just spin some yarns about macro stuff. But you do need to read something like super forecasters before you do it. You need to get into that and then realize how wrong you're likely to be. Oh God, the the track record is no bueno there. <laughs> it's not, not gonna an say e any names. A few are popping in my head, but I'm gonna keep. Oh, they myself. they all are. Like they all are. You, everybody's right one times in a row. You get you get famous <laughs> for being right one times in a row, and then you you know take your pick like Rubini or uh, the five thirty eight guy. Like all those guys, they get one thing. If you picked, if you if you took the entire universe of newsletter writers, there's somebody in there who's got the right. Somebody is right right now for the right reason. Completely coincidentally. And never again. 
Well, as a what? newsletter writer, I'll, I'll take my one run if I can get it. So hopefully yeah. it's me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one time for daddy. <laughs> I just want to be right once. <laughs> I'll take once. It's fine. It sounds pretty good right now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Someone asks, do you take the S&P 500 reversion to the mean model to pick tops and bottoms of the cycles? I think it would be very hard because that's one thing I know. It's like I love- um, You would have been ta- cash for 20, yeah. 17, 18, 19, 20, and then finally felt like you were half right in COVID. I used to do this little model where it would, you know, it would kick you out when you got to some new level of overvaluation on the Cape mm-hmm. and it would then kick you into- Treasuries uh, or something. Yeah. And so when the treasuries were yielding 6%, many times that was a great idea because you just you yeah. earned 6% for a year that's, when the market went down that's 20. That's the Munger model, huh? That's a good model. But the problem is that- <laughs> How to do lately. <laughs> the, the problem with it has been that CAPE has just got progressively more expensive over its history. And so whatever, you know, you had to find some way of dealing with whatever the overvalue. No, two, that's not right. Two sta- always crashes two standard deviations above the mean. It doesn't. Whatever you, it, whatever you, whatever absolute level you set for Cape, it's got more expensive each time before it's before it's actually managed to crash. So you can't be doing it backwards looking. There's just it doesn't work as a timing. Yeah. Valuation doesn't work as a timing tool. Can't be forced to work. Alex, how do you feel about uh, you, you? You said you looked at Home Depot. You got some yeah. Give us some uh, thoughts on that. story yeah. on Home Depot. I've been looking at Home Depot recently. I'm writing it up now. And I just thought it was a fascinating, it's a fascinating business slash stock story. And the business story is if if you want to take the last 30 years and kind of split them into two parts, the first half, you start in the early nineties, they have about 200 stores. You jump forward 15 years and they're at like 2,200 stores by the mid two thousands. And obviously, you know, the market, the market liked that a lot. And, you know, by, by the early 2000s, it's trading at, you know, call it 50 times forward, something like that. Um, then 2000, obviously, financial crisis comes around. Business gets hit, honestly, to less of a degree than I would have assumed. It's like low, down low single-digit comps for, or low to mid-single-digit for about three years. But obviously, you could imagine it being much worse than that during that period. Um, the bigger thing from strategic perspective is the company comes out and says, we're not going to build stores anymore. We're, we're kind of saturated in terms of what we think we should be doing. We're going to focus on the, the economics inside the four walls, what we already have. Obviously, other investments there like supply chain, remodeling, et cetera. But the market did not react favorably to that idea, um, at least at the time. It's, you know, it's a 10, 12 times earnings type of stock. Earnings at that time were around two bucks. And it's just a fascinating story in terms of you fast forward to today. Earnings last year, obviously there's, you know, there's there's pandemic stuff in here, but earnings last year are about $15.50 compared to $2. The cumulative increase in the store count over the past decade is less than 5%. Wow. Um, it's a it's it's just share a fascinating buybacks. share buybacks are part of it. Honestly, the bigger driver is just significantly improved Same unit economics. Yeah. And you know, there's a great interview with Frank Blake, who used to be the CEO, who effectively says, you know, excellence requires intense focus. And you just think about a company that's you know at 200 stores, gets to 2,200 over 15 years, was expanding internationally, had different concepts besides the core Home Depot box. You can imagine in real life, unlike in a financial model or spreadsheet, you can get spread pretty thin in terms of resources yeah. and managerial attention, et cetera, et cetera. Built that empire. So, yeah, exactly. So long story short, 
$60 stock at the turn of the century, a decade later, a $30 stock. And today it's like 320 or something like that. Crazy. What and a, you know a good addition came from for the, the build out to go 11x store count? I think a lot of it was internal, just as far as I know. Internal. Yeah, I'd have to look at the, I don't know if I have share count going back to the 90s or not, but I think a lot of it was internal and the economics were very attractive. A good addition to the story is Home Depot uh, started in late 70s in Atlanta. They opened stores in South Florida pretty soon thereafter. My dad's a plumber and we live in South Florida. He didn't buy the stock at that time. He did buy the stock around the turn of the century <laughs> when it was hot. <laughs> and he eventually sold it around uh, 2008, 9, 10, somewhere in that range. So <laughs> it was, uh, you know, right in his wheelhouse in terms of circle of confidence. And uh, he's in there every day. He's in there every day and uh, a strikeout on that one. Sorry, Dad, if you're listening. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought uh, it reminded me when you were talking about the transition from growth to, you know, they said they weren't going to build any more stores. It just reminded me of this. There was this Australian uh, mining company executive, kind of wildcat type dude, who was the actual miner behind it. And they had, they got, you know, had a big boom in the 80s. And then they got religion in the 90s about not spending so much money developing all of these, these mines. And he said that as they got the, um, the you know they got the discipline to make sure that their minds ran more efficiently and they didn't stop spend you know money doing silly acquisitions or any of that sort of stuff they lost the the blue sky speculative multiple that they had had and they went and started trading like a value stock and so the guy was like you know people they want us to be out there spending that money like the stock market tells us to go and do that and it's funny the number of times now that I think that I've seen that in stocks funny though when you think about something like Google Google doesn't get any credit for like that crazy blue sky stuff that they've got going on, their other bets, alphabets, so, other bets. Real quick, only because it ties into that perfectly. The Home Depot co-founders wrote a book in the late 90s, and there's a section in the book, and this is the period where they're starting to expand international, new concepts, et cetera. They say specifically in the book, we had to try to expand and do these other things because we wanted to kind of keep the high multiple that we become accustomed to, which is hilarious because it's a book where you read it and the whole way through, you're like, I, everything here is like gospel to me, and it reads perfectly in the way I think. And then you get to something like that. It's like, this is the exact opposite of what I behave want. Irrationally. Gonna... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Behave irrationally to get the higher multiple, but then you can use that higher multiple to do Currency. sensible things. Yeah. And again, it was a business that as far as I know, most of this was just internal funding one way. I mean, if anything, they, they were repurchasing shares. So it was something where you would, at least in theory, prefer it to be the other way. <laughs> but um, you know, at the same time, it might be different in their case where their co-founders still running it, own equity, et cetera. You can see how, like the Disney situation right now, you can see how stock price, your long-term vision better align with your shareholders and your board and everybody else. Because if it does, I mean, there's other problems there besides that, but it certainly is part of the story as well. So uh, it's an it's an interesting theory versus practice discussion on it, on some of this stuff. It's interesting to watch someone like. Buffett with Berkshire because Berkshire has gone through lots of different cycles where it's been loved and hated. And when it was loved last, when was it loved last? Probably in the late 1990s. Do you think JT or more recently would, than yeah, that? Yeah, I would say like the real, like a real hard love. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I would say like probably 98 when he did the Genry uh, swaparoo. That was 
pretty genius. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was going to raise too. That was as the last time when he sort of used overvalued stock to kind of do an acquisition. Where yeah, he overpaid, but he was overpaying with over overblown stock anyway. So from his perspective, he was like, it's, it, "That is a bargain." That is maybe cheap. BNSF a little bit too. Like they used some stock for that one, I think. Um, and that was probably, I mean, if you look at the profitability of that that company versus probably like the growth and profitability of Berkshire shares, which is how you should think about when you're trading your company for someone else's company. Uh, that was probably a pretty savvy move as well. Railways were just hated for a long time there. Buffett just picked that up right at the, mo- at the perfect moment because there was a great blog post that came around afterwards and I don't know who did it because it's too long ago now, but they pointed out how much money he pulled out in that initial period. He like basically got back a third or a half or more in cash over the first few years of that acquisition. Kind of amazing. Yeah. Speaking of Buffett and kind of what you were saying before about the Australian company, Oxy is a really interesting example of, you know, the company very clearly spelling out capital return policy and, and growth expectations. And I, my read on the situation when I look at it is that that certainly played a big part and, you know, they have to actually hold themselves to it now, which is the hard part, right? Everybody can, Everybody can say in a down cycle <laughs> yeah. what they're going to do when there's opportunities to grow again. But um, so we'll that's see. The, but I, that's the genius of Buffett, though, is that he points it out publicly and even yeah, calls out the slide. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's it. That's t- it. management to the mass. <laughs> that's it. Genius. It's interesting, though, that that's possibly that's what attracted him to it. He was like, well, we're at this point where they're going to be returning capital. I think that's a, an interesting model to think about. When he doesn't like the, the oh, super high growth, he likes it where they get to the point where they're like, we don't need capital anymore. We're going to be returning capital. We built it all out. Yeah, not only that, I mean, they specifically put a cap on production growth. Like there is no if, and, or buts about what the capital allocation policy here is. And to JT's or to your point, like Buffett uh, wants people to know that and management to stick to it, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I did see an interesting paper that talked about like why oil. Uh, or energy won't drill from here. And the basic uh, tenants were ESG, like there's still pressure ESG-wise from investors to not uh, have yeah. more drilling. Uh, Engineering-wise, the engineers are still telling like management, like let's save our tier one assets for later. Like don't, let's, there's no point in drilling in them. Uh, and then when they, you look at the math of of whether it makes more sense to drill that next marginal uh, well or buy back your shares for cheap, like the returns on buying back your shares, it's kind of a Tobin's Q type of uh, mentality where is it buy versus build, and the the buyback makes way more sense than the next drilling, and that that probably is going to go on as long as it stays cheap for ESG reasons. So it's it's I find it to be interesting. I'm I'm not sure what why that would be wrong. I know eventually like they'll all lose religion, uh, but it's probably not at prices where we are today. I don't know. Boone Pickens made the same observation. Boone Pickens made exactly the same observation about raiding in the eighties. I think he Mm. said it was cheaper to drill for oil on wall street than it was to go and actually drill for oil out in the the oil patch. Smart. There's also that somebody's pointed out, Ron Zola pointed out in the comments that, uh, the shale assets, do they seem to put a cap on where the oil price can go? Because there's a they're high cost assets, but at some point north of that, everybody starts drilling. And then that caps a little bit because you get a little bit of a flow. Did, did the shale actually produce any oil? Or did it produce any returns? Does anybody know? I, I thought that it didn't. Like I thought that we were like net 
net negative on money invested in Shell. That might not be right. No, that's, that's something like I think Bethany McLean said at one point. Okay. Uh, in she's a good source. Saudi America. I think that was her book. Um, but I don't know. How, like the the start and stop time of the measurement for that would probably be uh, pretty important. So it was probably true for some time period. I don't know if it's still true. I just I was just reminded. I, I think I tweeted this out after the the podcast. But Value Stock Geek has this um, has a newsletter that he sends out, and he had this little um, tidbit in there that I thought was kind of interesting. Buffett paid four hundred million for Dexter shoes, and he's complained about it in a few letters about the fact that it didn't make money or that it lost some money. The and Dexter then value stock. Money? You mean I think completely so, yeah. went away? <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he said that if he'd put the same four hundred million in Nike, oh yeah, it'd be twenty billion dollars today. Isn't that crazy? Whoops! Pretty wild. It just like the, often I sort of uh, fantasize about going and starting some enterprise, like a Berkshire Hathaway type thing, like everybody does, right? Can I be the vice vice chairman? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to be the vice chairman. No, no, I no, no. I want chairman. vice chairman. <laughs> I'll be Mark, then, a Mark Hamburger, whatever the CFO's name is now. I assume it's still him, but I'll take that job so nobody knows yeah, that's has any one. clue who I am. Just pay <laughs> that's me. a good job. Yeah, yeah that's a good <laughs> like, job. Probably gets paid 75K. <laughs> no, I think those those guys actually make a lot of money. But don't know, you? Okay. Every time I every time I think about doing that, I, I remember this. Like I had the same idea when I was a young lawyer doing private equity transactions, and the private equity—it's just so much work to do a tra- to do an acquisition, right? It's, there's so I much. You paper just wrote it on the back of a napkin, isn't that what Buffett does? I've never seen anybody do it like that. <laughs> they, they like produce these these three ring binders full of the uh, the acquisition agreements. There's like twenty binders full of acquisition agreements. You know, for all of the debt and all of the assets and everything, it's complicated. And then you're stuck in it. You can't get out of it. Like, it's that hard to get out. At the same time, you find the same asset trading on the stock market for like three yeah. times earnings. With no and you can get in it minute. for $5 in your uh, in yeah. Schwab account. <laughs> and then that you wake up tomorrow and you know you made a mistake. You just push a button and get back out. But you can still have those returns. Like, if you're going to be, you know, if you get the Dexter shoe and you stick it into Nike instead, which seems like, Seems like Dexter Shoe should be this hidden asset, right? And Nike's like everybody knows what Nike is. Everybody knew what it was twenty years ago whenever he bought Dexter Shoes. And that here we are, twenty years later, it's run up. Is that uh it's run up forty times? That's crazy. <laughs> 40, 50 times. It's run up fifty times because it was four hundred million. It is the it does speak to the just absolute uh amazing gift that public markets are to to the individual investor and the ability to transact so cheaply in world-class businesses uh, and have all the information available to you that's available to everyone else. Uh, what a godsend, really. Yeah. Yeah, you can f- those opportunities are just sitting out there in plain sight. So like Apple's another one. When Buffett did that Apple transaction, everybody knew what Apple was. It had been cheap Never three times in the last, last few <laughs> like it, that, that was late in the run, right? It's not like you. It's not like you're picking it up when Steve Jobs comes back or when they introduce the iPhone or the right. iPod or the the does like fruit coloured computers. You, you you're getting it. You're getting it way like everybody's seen it forever. It's one of the biggest companies around, and then you you and put yet. a third of your money into it and it pays off like that. I don't know if he said it immediately after when it was first disclosed or later on, but the comment about that that real estate being more valuable than Fifth Avenue. <clears throat> That was a yeah. uh, 
you know, in specific numbers, obviously he, he didn't say that, but it's a, it was a pretty, pretty smart comment in hindsight. Yeah, that was smart. And a 30% rake on that real estate as well. Yeah. It's not bad. Wow. Not bad. Not bad if you can get it. <laughs> and yeah. But that's, that's Bill's point. Bill's, Bill's in the comments here, <laughs> but that was his point too, that he got the he, he finally got his toll road right. Got his toll road on every bit of transaction that happens on the internet. A lot of cars going across that one. Crazy, wow. thirty cents out of the dollar too. I Do you see that? Can that? Right? Yeah, that's what I was going. Can you see that last thing? That's got to be. That's got to be broken at some it's point. Too, it's too win lose to stay forever. I mean, right? How do they get around it? Nature finds a way. Yeah, yeah. Good point. It's amazing to think the. I mean, this has been going on in some capacity, obviously, for a while. But just publicly, how many companies that pay them hundreds of millions of dollars a year in Match, Spotify, plenty of others that are just very Twitter. publicly coming. Yeah, just very publicly expressing discontent with the current. And it's just kind of a funny. I mean, I can't think of other topics that are really like that, if any. Um, companies tend to keep these things kind of behind closed doors, right? It's, it's and then funny we, to uh, see. We, we live cut to uh, the FTC and they're like playing solitaire on their. <laughs> <laughs> it's, fu- it's funny to see. Um, uh, oh, sorry. I've just completely blanked. I was reading Billy's. I was reading Billy's comment. Sorry. I, I interrupted. Um, yeah. Got time, for, time for a question or two for Alex, especially. Just say real quick, match group CFO, if you want to read somebody who's the most optimistic on something changing. He's a good person to read and he does a good job of covering what's happening in different jurisdictions and the like. I, I still don't believe that they actually have the proper read on what's going to change or when, um, but we'll see. They feel that it should or they feel that it will? They feel that it's it's starting to effectively. Um, they certainly feel that it should as well, but they've had their, I mean, it, it's funny enough, they, they had a bit of a tussle with Google and, Google ended up putting out a public blog, which I thought was very interesting, where they essentially trashed them and then and then mm-hmm. sued them, sued Match, which is obviously a big company that pays again hundreds of millions of dollars in app store fees every year. Um, it's it's very interesting to see. I, I was surprised that Google would do that if it's like a last throws of this is going away or them feeling so confident about the position that they're willing mm-hmm. to publicly kind of slam again a big company customer whatever you call them. It's just odd. I remember what it was that when, you know, when Twitter was having its fight, when Musk's, Musk said that uh, Apple had pulled some advertising. And so his solution was to go and build a competing phone, which don't want to laugh at someone like Musk. Clearly, he can go and build competing things that are very, very successful. But it's not like that strategy hasn't been tried before. Like Google's out there with a competing <laughs> phone. It's pretty good. Microsoft had a hard phone. To get, yeah. Everybody. Like Samsung's still out there with a the phone. You can you can get uh, Wall Street Journal did this article on it. And you can probably still find it out there somewhere where they just went to China and got a, a Wall Street Journal phone put together. The 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 reporter got the phone put together. Like it's it's a it's trivial. You know, like you go and tell them what you want. You want the mm. camera and all of the bits and pieces that you want in there, and you're probably going to get an Android operating system. And so you, we could have a value after hours phone if we wanted to. There could be a Tesla phone would be just a completely <laughs> trivial exercise. At this point, but I guess about, it's hard. You talk, that's the case that goes on the phone, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> the the problem with my phone, phone is this: still, there's things inside the phone. That's that's the thing that you need to make it work. 
folks, uh, we are coming up on time. This is going to be our last one for 2022 because I'm on vacation in Australia. Uh, probably try and do a meetup some point for any Aussies who want to come down. Uh, anybody else is welcome to from anywhere, but it's a long flight. That's the only thing. What are you up to for uh, for the break, Alex? Uh, I am heading to San Diego for a week, which should be fun. And then I will be, after finishing up Home Depot, I will be looking at uh, Floor and Decor, which is an interesting mm. kind of smaller retailer that I've been meaning to look at for a while. Uh, the firm I used to work at in Georgia actually had a couple ties to the company. So I know a little bit about it from when they went public, but it's a, seems like a pretty interesting concept that I'm, that I don't know enough about right now, but I, I'm very interested to learn more about. Floor and decor. What do they do? Floor. It's a, it's, it, yeah, they and do floor <laughs> and decoring. <laughs> no, they do. I think it's mostly, uh, you know, I guess you would call it like more commercial relationships. You might go in there and pick something out, but they're dealing with a, a contractor or someone like that is my understanding. It's not you going in there and buying those Got type it. of things. So I, I know very, very little about it at this point, but having with the Home Depot, I'm excited to dig more into that space. So what about you, JT? What, what are you doing for the break? Uh, going to go to Mexico with the wifey for, for about oh, nice. a week, which is much, much needed little, just the two of us getting away. We haven't we haven't gone anywhere without the kids and it's pre COVID I think. So it's, it's, it'll be nice. And then, uh, yeah. And then just home and doing, making the magic with the kids, magical memories like we try to do. So. Oh, that will be fun. Is this, is this the journalistic international launch? Is that, are you saying that right now or <laughs> for tax, for tax purposes? Yes. <laughs> That's where HQ is at. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're thinking about shifting it to the Bahamas. That seems like a good spot for stuff. Uh, I think some real estate's yeah. opening Not, up. Non-extradition treaties. Yeah, yeah, non-extradition yeah. treaties are nice. Uh, apparently, the banking rules are pretty pretty uh, yeah. lenient. Evidently. <laughs> Do whatever you want. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Well, thanks for all the uh, love and support this year, guys. We'll be we'll be back uh, early next year. So take it easy, everybody. Thanks, Alex, too, for filling in for Billy. Yeah, thanks, Alex.